Hello, America. If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management guidance while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Along with engineer Griff, the famous engineer Griff, and the newest Washington University bear and the true rock star of our firm, let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where will we go today? That, that's quite an intro, Mark. Griff, are you blushing? I am, I must say. <laughs> All right, good. Um, we'll get you some theme music or uh, some cheering fans next time. But um, <laughs> uh, good to have you, Griff. Thanks for the wonderful intro, as always, Mark. Um, today, and, and just a housekeeping note for our listeners, uh, this podcast will be on YouTube and the podcast. Uh, there will be some visuals and graphs, but we'll do our best so that uh, audio listeners only uh, will also uh, get just as much from this. But if you're if you're also a visual learner and you'd like to see the graphs, don't forget to check out our YouTube page. Uh, you can find it on our website. Mark, what's our website? www.mk-am.com. Perfect. So you can find the podcast, uh, the uh, the YouTube, all, all linked there. So with the housekeeping out of the way, um, what we're going to talk about today is a, a graph, a bit of a famous graph that you see make the rounds in financial services all the time. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a financial planner uh, that showed a graph. I think it was on LinkedIn and he's, it was on the perils of market timing. And he said, he, he showed a graph and said, hey, here's the stock, here's your stock market return. Here's your portfolio over the last few decades. If you would have uh, missed the 10 best days in the stock market. Mark, does that ring a bell? Have you seen write-ups? You know, like what happens to your stock market returns if you miss the 10 best days? Yes, because they're generally followed by somebody touting themselves and saying, you know, I always, you know, only get the best and miss the worst. Yeah. Very self-serving. Self-serving. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's it's this kind of analysis. I feel like there's an element that's trying to be helpful, which is don't react on your emotions. Don't panic when the market falls precipitously because you may miss the bounce back. I feel like that's reasonable, that, that, that's good, that's helpful advice. But to your point, it's also self-serving because these posts tend to come from, uh, I don't wanna pick on anybody here, so I'm gonna try to name everybody, but uh, these posts come from Fidelity and Citigroup and Wells Fargo and Charles Schwab and all the financial institutions that sort of have a bias. They want you to put your money in the stock market, leave it there and never not be invested. So I was just curious, I Googled and uh, Griff, um, I encourage you to do this. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure you were doing this Google search uh, over the weekend as well. Uh, but if you Google 
stock market missed 10 best days. And I have it up here as our first slide. Um, Griff, how many Google results are generated when we Google this phrase? 897 million. 897 million. <laughs> Honestly, I was even surprised how high that number is. Um, so 897 million and Google has in parentheses 0.47 seconds. I don't know if that means someone's Googling this every half a second, which is pretty incredible, but 897 million is a lot. So 897 million times have the Hartford funds and Wells Fargo written about, oh, make sure you don't miss the 10 best days. And, and uh, Google even has a helpful summary here. Um, I, I read through as many of these as I could, I, uh, that, that I uh, was willing to over the weekend. It was also my son's seventh birthday. So I only went through a few pages of results, but none of them uh, asked kind of a, uh, the second question or uh, the question that naturally came to my mind is, why are we focusing just on missing the 10 best days? Has anyone looked at missing the 10 best days and the 10 worst days? So I've, there's 897 occurrences of people analyzing what happens if you miss the 10 best days. I couldn't find a single one of what happens if you miss the 10 best days and the 10 worst days. Griff, Mark, I don't know anybody unlucky enough that would have the magical timing to be out of the market only 10 days, and those happen to be the 10 best days. So uh, already, um, I, I think um, we have a bit of a straw man or specious um, example set up, um, but, but let's get into it. Um, first, I wanna pull up the graph. So this, this is the graph uh, that, it, that accompanies uh, uh, this kind of analysis. So what we have here is a bar graph that shows uh, an investor's portfolio for a value from 1989 to 2023. One shows the buy and hold. You put your money in the S&P 500, uh, New Year's 1989. Um, your grandma gave you a check. Your parents give you a check. They said, Griffey, you're young. You're going to college. We're giving you $100,000 to put in the S&P 500. You don't touch it. You go to college. You graduate. Uh, you, you start a family. You get a job. You don't touch it. Um, and uh, 24 years later, your 100,000 would now be worth uh, 1,485,870 if you didn't touch it. And you rode through uh, the 2001 crash, the 08 crash, the COVID crash. Congratulations, you turned 100,000 into one and a half million. How does it feel, Griff? Feels pretty good. <laughs> Excellent. Mark, you're our other investor. You're the unluckiest guy in the world. You're, you're the mush from Bronx Tale right? Uh, uh, just for this example, not in real life, folks. Mark's a very lucky individual who lives in Las Vegas. But in this example, when the markets uh, tanked in the crisis, you panicked and you escaped the market right before the market bounced back. Um, if you did that and you missed the 10 best days, you turned your 100,000 into 682,000. Still not bad, but as, as, the, Google as the Google summary showed, your, your hat of Griff's portfolio value. How do you feel, Mark? I'd be asking Griff for a low interest rate loan. <laughs> Griff, don't forget to take care of Uncle Mark. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> All right. So, and, and again, um, one of the helpful aspects of this kind of analysis is to show there are extreme days on the positive side. Um, but what these what these uh, uh, exercises ignore is if there's extreme days on the positive side there's probably also extreme days on the negative side. So what was interesting is the, if we look at when the 10 best days were, so on this table, Mark, on the left, 
sorted in order of oldest to newest from 1989 to 2023 uh, through last week, we had the, the 10 best days. Mark, we, do you notice something about, so, so we have single day performances of plus 12%, plus 11%. What do you notice about the best days? When did they happen? Well, they, they generally happened, I'm gonna guess, probably right after or nearly shortly thereafter, after some of the worst days. Those were big. Those were big bounce back days. That was during the oh, you know, the oh eight oh nine. That was the the height of the financial crisis. Exactly. It's an excellent guess, and also you have it on the table in front of you. If you look on the left side of the table, um, that verifies your guess. Um, so, so you see that the majority of them happened in the Great Financial Crisis in two thousand eight, and then below that, what was the other period? COVID. COVID. Okay, and so those are the best days, and on the right. We have the worst days. Uh, Mark Griff, uh, jump ball here. Um, do you notice something about the best days and the worst days? Fairly close to each other in terms of the numbers, the bounces. Right, right, and, and the timing. Shortly thereafter, right? Yeah, after. they're all. Yeah, they're all very like. On the heel, they're on the heels of each other. Exactly, and um, you could say, and 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 it, I think it's logical. Um, so the the worst day. Uh, if you look at the uh, worst days on the right, um, you're looking at September 29th, 2008. The market was down 9%. Uh, uh, two weeks later, the market bounced back 12% on October 13th, right? The market fell, uh, and that was on October 13th. Two days later, on October 15th, the market fell by 9%. 13 days later, on the 28th, it rose by 11%. So I, I think a really good analogy that... Um, uh, uh, Mark and Griff, your French is much better than mine. And Mark, I know you have a math prodigy, uh, but there's a brilliant mathematician from France. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's something like Benoit Mandelbro. Mark, does that ring a bell, Mandelbrot? Not with that pronunciation, no. Not with that pronunciation, that's totally fair. He's the inventor <laughs> of fractal, fractal geometry. And the way he describes volatility in financial markets is like airplane turbulence, right? So you either have calm skies or you're in a pocket of turbulence. And um, mathematicians up till today have a, uh, uh, haven't been able to predict when you're going to have the turbulence. You know, you'll be on a flight with a pilot and they'll say, hey, I, I, just so you guys know, I think we're gonna head towards some turbulence and then they get you through it. Like it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like the, um, when the leaves are gonna change color in the fall. So far science and math, hasn't been able to predict accurately when it's going to happen. Uh, it's kind of similar in financial markets. Uh, we hit these pockets of turbulence and you have these extreme up and down and then you get through it. Um, if you look at the best and the worst in the GFC from September 29th, 2008 until March 23rd, 2009, it wasn't just, oh, you had seven best wonderful days. You also had five uh, really stressful negative days. So you can't really uncouple the best and the worst. You had this pocket of turbulence. And then in COVID, the same thing. All the best and worst actually happened in a really truncated period from March 9th to April 6th. So um, rather than asking ourselves what would happen if you missed these best days, because I think this reframes it. These weren't best days um, because Microsoft uh, had a, a, a winning investment in ChatGPT or Google came out with a search engine. These were the best days because they were in these turbulent periods following 
uh, the, these really these worst periods. So what we studied, and again, despite the 900 million examples that looked at the missed best to buy and hold, as far as I could find, we're the first that have quantified the best and the worst together. Griffey, the yes. checkered bar on the top, the missed best and the worst. How does this, how does this the uh, compare to the missed best or the buy and hold? Well, it looks like the best. <laughs> it looks like the best. So um, Griffey's dad just uh, actually did better with his strategy of missing the best and the worst than Griffey and Uncle Mark. So he ended up with 200,000 more dollars by missing the best and the worst. So then the next logical question becomes, uh, the next logical question becomes, um, can investors have a methodology and approach where they try to miss that turbulence? They try to miss the best and the worst together. And um, before we offer our hypotheses, and I'm happy to go around the table here and uh, hear what, everybody, uh, what everybody's hypothesis is, um, what this next graph shows is start to finish during the first pocket of turbulence. So what this does is it starts the day before, um, it starts the day before one of our 10 worst and it ends after one of our 10 best. And this encapsulates all the GFC, it encapsulates 70% uh, or so of the best and the worst uh, uh, daily returns in the S&P 500. And what you'll notice is the S&P 500 actually ends this period 33% below where it started. So the narrative of um, the 900 million articles about missing the best kind of gets it wrong. We wanna recalibrate, uh, uh, we wanna recalibrate that exercise. Um, the best days almost make up for the worst days for the drawdowns but not quite. So Warren Buffett uh, likes to talk about the worst thing for your wealth is when your dumb neighbor is getting rich, right? We tend to think of this exercise in that context. Nobody wants to get out of the market in a panic and then end up with less money than if they would have done nothing. But um, that's kind of been the narrative up until now. That you're either one or the other. Um, we would like to suggest there might be a third way, which is there might be another neighbor that you don't know about who's very calm and relaxed and maybe avoided this period altogether. But we think it's great advice that you should not react emotionally and jump out of the market because you're going to miss the bounce back of the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, next couple of months. But perhaps for investors who become overly uh, anxious and emotional, and they know that about themselves, um, maybe there's something they could do to change their market exposure uh, before we enter these pockets of turbulence. And secondly, for investors who make withdrawals for their portfolio, retirees, pension plans, endowments and foundations, also maybe there's a way that they can reduce their market exposure uh, before these turbulent periods happen. So devising a strategy uh, or, or not having a strategy of acting emotionally is, is definitely never a good course, but maybe there's a better course than just buying and hold and doing nothing. Or, or maybe it'd be nice if there was a, an additional tool uh, uh, for those investors. And what this suggests is the first best is having some kind of an indication that there's greater risk in the market. And we have other, we have other podcasts and this is kind of uh, becoming part of a series, but um, uh, Mark Griff, I, I would suggest that um, follow um, paying attention to the valuation of the stock market, 
and then also trend following can be two tools that are very rational, not emotional, and have shown great efficacy historically about sending up warning signals before the 2008 great financial crisis, before uh, the uh, stock market crash of 1987, before COVID. So we just covered a lot of ground. Griff, Mark, any comments or questions uh, based on this analysis? Well, I would just add that you know emotion plays such a big part, you know, in in everyday decisions, and especially when it comes to money. And even now, more so than two thousand and eight, where news and and opinion and editorializing and pundits, pundits, and you know bloggers uh, come off with such an everyone's an authority. And the masses are just inundated with opinion, right? And uh, you know, one of my favorite things to look at when I want to relax for a few minutes online is the Onion because it's so farcical. Um, but a lot of people think the Onion is real, real news. And um, I, my my opinion might be that most of the news out there is more, more like the Onion. Uh, because it's one person's uneducated opinion and, and guidance and advice. And I, th I think what you said, Steve, you know, taking the emotion out of it, um, you know, subscribing to, you know, committing to a strategy that makes sense, um, not necessarily one of the 847 million results that, that came up, um, because those, for the most part, are very self-serving. So uh, I, I think, you know, you, Stay calm, try to keep your blood pressure level and you know, get the best advice that you can uh, when it comes to your money. Remember, it's number three on your life top 10 list. Uh, perfect. Uh, Griff, any comments or questions? Um, usually I'd have a question by now, but actually I think I think I'm I think I'm good for now. <laughs> All right. That's, um, <laughs> either either the analysis was so powerful or your your bagel and coffee haven't kicked in yet. <laughs> one of the two yeah <laughs> yeah so Steve I'll add one more thing um now if somebody goes to, go, does a google search on you know what happens if you miss the best and the worst right 10 days they'll come up with one result on the internet that that, that that's the goal mark that's the goal um in the um that that that, that would be a wonderful result of this uh, uh podcasting process and um skipping ahead to the uh, next slide, um, you guys can see that the same thing transpired in the COVID crash where um, after reaping the best days, you're almost back to break even, uh, which, which is a, a lot different than making people feel guilty for uh, being out of the market and missing the best days. Again, missing the, the, missing the window around COVID was much, uh, what was much better for your wealth then missing the best days was um, a detractor for your wealth. And um, there may be some listeners who think, oh, but who could have predicted uh, COVID? And, you know, other than the movie Contagion with Matt Damon and um, all the scientists that were working on an RNA vaccine in 2000, in the early 2000s, but then stopped because they lacked funding, um, leaving all those people aside who had warned for years about something like COVID um, the, and just focusing on once COVID happened, you know, there may be some people that say, well, how would you have known when to get out of the stock market? Um, again, what's fascinating, and to Mark's point, we're not advocating, I wouldn't advocate that anyone should try to do this on their own or without a rigorous system. 
but but it's an observable fact, and anybody can uh, check for themselves that uh, the stock market models that have high predictive power, like Schiller Cape, um, were warning that the stock market was very expensive before COVID happened, um, and then uh, so so. The, the interesting thing, I think, is unlike airplane turbulence, um, which we referenced earlier, there actually are some pretty clear, and we've discussed it on previous podcasts, but there are some pretty clear warnings the market gives using valuation and trend about when risk is higher or lower. Um, so I worked for a financial advisor uh, in New York City uh, for an, uh, about seven years, and I remember we had a number of clients and some of my colleagues who were very nervous because after 2008, the great financial crisis, and Griff, you're a little young for this, Mark, you'll know exactly what I mean, but after the great financial crisis, uh, people were really scarred from that. They had PTSD from 2008. They were waiting for the next crash to happen. Uh, people were afraid of the U.S. government running out of money. Good thing we don't have to worry about that anymore, the fiscal cliff. People were worried about the dissolution of Europe. They were worried about oil prices, emerging markets, China slowdown. I mean, all these things probably sound familiar. What I like about a program using non-emotional, rational uh, techniques that have shown efficacy in the past, like valuation and trend, is they were actually flashing bright green signs to allow worried investors to take more stock market exposure post-GFC, all the way up until about 2018, when the Fed began raising rates. So um, the signals flashing or giving you more indication about risk go both ways. When they say that they're smooth sailing, it allows worried investors to actually take more stock market exposure, which was incredibly beneficial for decades when uh, bond, when uh, bond yields were almost zero uh, because of Fed Reserve policy. So it goes both ways. But I think having a system and having a methodology can it, it is better than, and especially for advisors and financial planners, using those kinds of systems for their clients is so much better than writing 900 million articles and kind of shaming people. How dare you let your emotions get the best of you? Um, there was a great podcast with Daniel Kahneman the founder of basically the founder of uh, behavioral economics or one of the luminaries who studied how uh, uh, emotions get the best of us. He has these famous examples. Judges find uh, um, uh, more defendants guilty when they're hungry. People perform different when they don't get enough sleep, when they're, when they're happy, when they're sad. And a podcast guest uh, interviewer asked him, how has your life changed now that you know that humans make all these emotional mistakes? And he said, not at all. I'm still human. I've fixed nothing about my life, right? I, I think having, uh, at least for me and coming from the foundation world, you know, having a rigorous system, having ways that give you a good, met, uh, uh, um, a, a good reading on when it's smart to take risk and when you should be more cautious is just so much better. And uh, I'm excited as our firm, Mark, to, to maybe um, help spread the word about that with other advisors and financial planners and, and, um, and intelligent clients like all of ours are. I think that's just so much healthier than just admonishing people for reacting on their emotions, which if we're all being honest, we all do. True, 100% true. I think you, I think you summed that up very appropriately. Well okay. Done.
So we're going to close with two more slides and maybe we're, this is all just to see if we can stimulate a wonderful question from Griff because his questions are our podcast listeners favorites. Um, <laughs> but, um, so we're going to pull up, we're going to pull up the chart again. And Mark, I, I liked your comment there. We will try to, we will try to be David to the uh, 900 million Goliath and we will try to get Mick missed best worst into the lexicon, not just into the, the universe, uh, not just missed best. So Griffey, if you had $100,000 at the uh -huh. start of 1989, you bought the S&P 500, you ignored it. You just checked your portfolio, buy and hold. How much do you have today? Oh, I'm at 1.4. Read the whole thing, will you? It just sounds more impressive. Okay, I can do that. $1,485,870. Congratulations. <laughs> Mark. You, you, sorry, Mark, this is not, this isn't fair because you're a rational man. Mark, you have a neighbor who's very emotional. He took his money out and missed exactly the best 10 best days. Uh, and, and how much money does that person have today? My neighbor who sells and returned my lawnmower, that loser, he only has $681,446. <laughs> Return the lawnmower, buddy. And then Mark, you or Griffey's father, obviously, the the, uh, the the rational sound investors in the room. You, you guys were working with an advisor, a financial planner, or you, uh, uh, um, that that had a sound strategy and uh, and, and sought to and was successful, missing the ten best and the ten worst. How much money do you have today? Thirty-eight, four sixty-eight. Uh, read it one more time, would you mind? Million, one million six hundred thirty-eight thousand four hundred sixty-eight dollars. We got to use that voice, Mark. <laughs> so uh perfect and then uh, just in one last slide in closing one of the most i would argue maybe the most important slide in finance um we use it all the time in different variations but over the long uh, arc of history whether you're in the united states sweden england um the uh, um the stock market historically returned about 10 percent a year bonds returned 5% a year, short-term bonds returned about 4% a year. Um, that was first really well documented by, uh, in a book called Triumph of the Optimist. This is the normal historical relationship. Every once in a while, these numbers get really out of whack, often because the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, are trying to change the economy by manipulating monetary policy, and that changes how financial markets work. As we covered in our last podcast, these numbers are totally out of whack and treasury bill rates are higher than stock market rates. Generally, we would love to buy and hold and just own stocks and get 10% a year, but those rates were not handed down by Moses. They're not preordained by God or an invisible hand of capitalism. That is your return for taking risk intelligently. And if you're, uh, if you're an investor, who invest for individuals or you're a active individual investor, uh, we, we believe you have an obligation to acknowledge when the risks are higher than normal and protect yourself and protect investors. If you can be, if you can stick with the buy and hold strategy and ride out the roller coaster, wonderful. Um, we've seen people do it, but if you have the temperament or your client has a temperament, or you need to make regular withdrawals and you can't hit the pause button on your withdrawals, we think it's a wonderful time to consider 
if there might be a, a different strategy, maybe you can add an approach and take more risk when the returns for taking risk look attractive and take less risk, less risk uh, when uh, the reward for taking less risk are lower. So hopefully this is thought provoking for people. I'll let Griff or Mark come, on, come in with any final thoughts, but really at the end of the day, our goal is we don't want our clients to get on the roller coaster if the roller coaster is pointing downward. And so um, we study this stuff all the time and we just wanted to throw out something a little bit suggestive to challenge conventional wisdom uh, because our first goal is always to protect our clients and investors' wealth. Mark Griff, any following comments? Um, yeah, I actually have a question. So I guess I'm just wondering since you know the market is always volatile, how can you differentiate like just normal fluctuation from like a turbulent period, I guess you could say, when you should be exiting the market? And like I know there are many indicators, like there's some that you were mentioning, but how can just like a, an average person, you know, like decide or understand or identify, I guess, when they when this could be like considered a turbulent period when they should be, you know, exiting the market? Griff, I'm glad the coffee kicked in. <laughs> That is, a, that is a fantastic question. So first and foremost, valuation has nothing to do with the volatility of the market, but it is a bit of a causal factor. So um, historically, when we've had uh, the most volatile markets, it's actually the market correcting from a period of overvaluation. So um, when, when we use predictive models that say the S&P is likely to return 10% or more per year, um, you tip, you historically haven't got the crashes you've gotten as when the model predicts that the market is due to return 0% a year. So uh, valuation is one way. Um, and uh, uh, Warren Buffett and other um, intelligent uh, and successful market participants have talked about don't confuse volatility and risk, right? If, if the market was moving up and down, but going up and to the right, and you were seeing your portfolio grow, right? That's okay. But uh -huh. if, it's, if it's volatile, like we saw in the previous two slides with COVID in 08, if it's volatile and going down, that's not. What we would counsel investors to uh, want to do is um, really uh, focus on avoiding the downside volatility. So um, noting what the, so, so today, the, the best predictive models predict the S&P will return about 5% a year for the next decade, which is about half of what the chart on the screen shows, the historical normal occurrence of 10%. One of the ways 5% gets back to 10% is the market falls by about 30%. So to your point, the odds to, uh, of a crash are greater today because of valuation. So that's one way that you can look at it. And anybody can look at... Um, yeah, and anyone can look at the Schiller Cape model, the Buffett indicator, market value to GDP, Tobin's Q, uh, uh, price to sales. There's there's a lot of indicators to do that. The second one, getting more into the volatility, is on trends. Um, from 2009, when the market S and P bottomed at 666, as it as it rose a few thousand points, there was a really strong upward trend where if you looked at the market in the short term, it continued to rise above its long-term averages. So, the tr so not only was valuation low enough to predict 
strong double digit returns. Valuation was uh, low and positive. There was also a very strong trend where the market um, was significantly rising uh, uh, up. So you had the best environment to invest in and the one you need to be least worried, right, is when you have low valuations and returns are good. And vice versa, when you have high valuations and returns are bad, that's when you want to be the most risk averse. And yeah, and to your point, Griff, historically, the S&P 500 standard deviation has been around 18%. Um, And so you can think about a 10% return. What do you spend to get that? Well, you accept about 18% standard deviation, right? So 10 to 18, Uh right? Well, today, the expected return is five, but the standard deviation expectation is still 18, right? So you're kind of taking the same risk, but now you're getting half the reward, right? Uh So so institutional investors like to think about something called the sharp ratio. Um, Sharp was the last name of the individual who invented it, but it's where you think about the return divided by the risk. How much return am I getting for taking that risk? And the nice thing is with treasury bonds, debt issued by the U.S. government, it's as close to risk-free as there is. And Uh then if you hold the bond to maturity, um, you're guaranteed to get your principal plus interest back. And then along the way, there's not much volatility. So if you could get five today with virtually no volatility or five with 18, right? And um, you just think, you know, we were all used to thinking about risk and reward, right? Well, and generally, the more risk you take, the more return you get. That's why bonds do bills and stocks do bonds. But there are extreme situations where that relationship breaks down. And if you if you keep showing up to the market and saying, well, I'm always going to get the same return for my risk, um, history suggests that, that that's, um, that's an incorrect way to view the market. And remember, this whole conversation, we haven't been talking about trying to beat the market in terms of trying to get short return, we've simply been talking about trying to avoid those stomach churning, out of business, hopefully maturing uh, drawdowns. And um, to your point, valuation returns have been really reliable indicators about when the risk get goes uh, is is down. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. I, I yeah, would just Griff, add that Griff, based upon that Griff, I'd add that based upon that question when you start your freshman year, you should jump to third year economics. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to be bored. You're going to be bored. Make I'll up your own slang terms. <laughs> second that, Griff. All right. Well, I'll think of you when I'm in my freshman economics class. <laughs> Try to stay away. Exactly. <laughs> no joke. Great job, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests. Nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice, and please consult your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please email us at podcast at Inseco.com. For more information about our podcast guests and clients, please visit us at www.inseco.com, inseco.com, or email us at info at inseco.com. Thank you for joining us. Have a great American Investing Week.